0: Uh, For example, the betrayal of of Julius Caesar uh, by Marcus Brutus, uh, at least known to many of us in in part because of Shakespeare. Uh, You've got the betrayal of America by Benedict Arnold in the Revolutionary War. Uh, The betrayal of Han Solo by Lando Calrissian in The Empire Strikes Back. Seriously, though, uh, we do know that betrayal is is a big deal, that it is a weighty thing, that it is a serious and painful offense, because it is a ripping apart of relationship. And of course, the the Bible is full of them as well, including Samson and Delilah, and of course, the most famous being the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. But before that most famous one, we encounter the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. A story of betrayal, adultery, and murder. And that story is the backdrop for Psalm 51. And so you see, years earlier, before David was king, uh, he had fled for his life from Saul. Uh, and he had been accompanied by a band of brothers, uh, brothers in arms, uh, men who were committed to him, who defended him. Uh, these these were loyal followers a uh, Faithful soldiers, trusted friends, a uh, men who would give their very lives for David. And one of those men, uh, David's friend and fellow soldier, uh, was a man named Uriah. Well, in 2 Samuel 11, uh, after David has become king, uh, we read about a time when David was neglecting the military duties of a king. In other words, he was staying at home while his army was off fighting when he should have been with them. If you know the story, you know that while he was at home, one day he was strolling along the walkway across uh, the roof of the palace, and he stopped and stared at a woman who was bathing. He desired her, sent for her, and slept with her, uh, what some consider even to be rape. And so who was this woman? Well, if you know, her name is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Uriah, who was off at battle, faithfully defending his king while his king was sleeping with his wife. And Bathsheba got pregnant by David. So what does David do? Well, he's got to figure out a way to cover this up. And so he has Uriah sent back home to return from battle, supposedly to give an update on how things are going. And then David encourages Uriah, while you're here, why don't you go home, be refreshed, lay with your wife, and then return. But Uriah, a man full of honor, refuses comfort while his men are fighting. So David detains him a day longer, has another dinner with him, gets Uriah drunk, and hopes that he will go home and sleep with Bathsheba. And again, Uriah refuses comfort while his men are fighting. And so, unable to cover his tracks, David finally sends Uriah back to battle and sends him with a confidential note, top secret note to give to his commander. And inside, when his commander opens up that note, it says to put Uriah on the front lines of battle where he will be killed. And he was, along with several other valiant men. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Because we're talking about King David, a good shepherd. We're talking about the one who is is known as the man after God's own heart. A good king, a military champion, one who years earlier, way before he became king, saved his people when he trusted God and defeated Goliath. This is a man who is compassionate toward his people, passionate for his God. And yet today in our story, David is covered in blood. A story of betrayal, adultery, murder. And again, this is the context of Psalm 51. Well, you know, it's it's one thing to think about ourselves as being betrayed, but it's an entirely different thing to think about ourselves as being the betrayer the sobering reality, if we are to take our sin as seriously as we should, our brokenness, our fallenness, the fallenness of the world, the sobering reality is that if David could do this, then you and I could do this as well. And so that means that we desperately need to hear God's life-giving word uh, to change us, to, to reorient our hearts so that we might know more about ourselves, more about our God, more about our salvation. And so, before we uh, hear God's Word in Psalm 51, uh, let's go to Him in prayer. Well, Lord God Almighty, uh, we do thank You once again this day for Your life-giving Word. Uh, We thank You for the truth of the gospel that You have revealed to us in Jesus' And we ask now that through the power of your Spirit, that you would open us to your Word, and your Word to us. Amen. And So now I invite you to hear God's Word from Psalm 51. I'm going to begin with a brief, a brief excerpt from 2 Samuel, again for context. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Uh, Nathan came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat from his hand and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, but the rich man was unwilling to take from his own flock to prepare a meal for his guest, and so took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the traveler. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan looked David in the eye and said to him, You are the man. And David responded by writing Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing, will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And this is God's word. This is God's Word and an amazing response to being convicted of sin. This morning as we take a look at Psalm 51, we're going to consider three things. Uh, The context, the content, and the cross. Okay, the the context, the the setting or the backdrop for the psalm, which, good news, check, we've already done that. So, uh, second thing we're going to look at is, is the content. What do we see in Psalm 51, what, what does it say? What's, what's the main point get, trying to get across here? And then finally, the cross. So now that we have the cross and we can look back, how, to, how does seeing the cross inform the way that we understand Psalm 51? And so to start, or, or rather continue, uh, let's pick up with the content. And The content of Psalm 51 can be summarized in one word, repentance. Now, as you have heard many times from this pulpit, uh, the regular pattern of the Christian life is to be marked by a growing repentance and faith. Uh, Jesus' first words in Mark's gospel, repent and believe the good news. Uh, Martin Luther's first statement in the 95 that he nailed on the door at Wittenberg, all of life is to be repentance. And yet Calvin noted, it's easy to use the words faith and repentance, but they are the things that are most difficult for us. And so why? Why is that? Well, it's because many, if not most of us, have a misunderstanding of repentance, at least to varying degrees. And so my hope today is to help us better understand the gift of repentance, Now, one startling uh, definition that I came across comes from Tim Keller. Repentance is killing the habits of the heart that are killing you without killing yourself. Repentance is killing the habits of the heart that are killing you without killing yourself. Now, of course, simply put, repentance is turning from sin and turning to God, which of course means if you think about that further, it is turning from death and turning to life. And in Psalm 51, David expresses true repentance. But before we talk further about repentance, how did David get there in the first place? I mean, how did David get from from 2 Samuel 11 to Psalm 51? How did he get to a place of actually seeing his sin and then repenting of it? Well, think about it this way. You ever been caught with your fly down? Maybe a little something between your teeth or something hanging from your nose? How did you know someone told you? Either that or you walked in the restroom, noticed, and then you were unhappy with the someone that didn't tell you. But most of the time, it's because someone told you. In other words, someone saw what you couldn't see. And here, Nathan tells David about what he couldn't see, about what he was blind to. And as one commentator puts it, God sends Nathan not to condemn, but to convict, to convert. Not to wield a sword, but to cut with a scalpel in order to cut out the cancer that kills. And so Nathan could see in David what David could not see about himself. Now, David's sin, it may seem so obvious to us, but it wasn't to him. Okay, and in the same way, someone else might be able to see your sin clearly while you remain blind To it. Now, this should not be surprising at all. I mean, because think about sin. By its very nature, it is deceptive. Sin is deceptive. So, so much of the time, we get caught up in our own self-deception, self-denial, blind to the sin that is killing us and hurting others. And David was fortunate. David was fortunate to have a friend who cared, one who cared about him, and who cared about the people that he served who cared enough to call him out and point him to the Lord. So let me ask you this. Do you have Nathans in your life? Others who can, who can shoot straight with you, can, can call you out uh, when you're doing wrong, when you're, when you're being hurtful. And then another question, do you make it safe for others to be a Nathan to you? Are, are you approachable? Do you, do you invite, do you welcome feedback? Do you receive it well? I mean, I, I think of my own life, and sure, there are sins that I can see, but there are definitely sins that I can't see. And so I'm grateful, maybe not in those exact moments, but ultimately I'm grateful when people have, have helped me to see it. And I mean, when you think about it, if David can blind himself to adultery, and to murder, then for sure I can blind myself to anger, to bitterness, to greed, and the list goes on and on and on. Because we can't see what we can't see, right? And that's why we need to love one another in this way. God puts it this way in Proverbs 27. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Now, it doesn't always feel good, but God uses it for our good. And so whether it is solely through the inner conviction of the Holy Spirit, which it always takes, or if it also includes the open rebuke of another person, God always uses that for our good to lead us to repentance, which is to lead us to Him. And so again, repentance is killing the habits of the heart that are killing you, without killing yourself. Or again, simply put, repentance is turning from sin and turning to God. It's turning from death to life. And the gospel both calls us to and also empowers us for true repentance. And what we see here in Psalm 51 are four primary characteristics of true repentance. Uh, I got these from fellow pastors, uh, Bob Thune and Will Walker, so I'm grateful uh, for their help in seeing this. But here's four characteristics of true repentance. And so first, true repentance is oriented toward God, not me. Okay, it's oriented toward God, not me. Uh, We we see this in in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned, O Lord, and done what is evil in your sight. Now, yes, did David sin against David and Bathsheba? For sure. But here he's understanding that, that, that first and, and foundationally, fundamentally, his sin is against his God. And so, second, true repentance is motivated by true godly sorrow, not Selfish regret. Okay, it's motivated by true godly sorrow, not selfish regret. Now take a look, verse 3. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Okay, David is seeing his sin. He is grieved for the strain of relationship with God in the way that he is finally admitting that it has hurt others. And so he's now become concerned about the sin itself, not just the consequences. You know, so much of the time we're more concerned about the consequences. I mean, that was most of the the time the the case when I got caught as a kid doing something. I wasn't so disturbed by what I had done wrong, but I got caught. We continue doing that as adults too, don't we? So third, true repentance is concerned with the heart, not just external actions. It's concerned with the heart, not just external actions. And so why is that? Well, repentance is a relational category more than a behavioral one. Okay, so it's about the heart. The very center, biblically speaking, the heart, the very center of who we are. Okay, that that which, which makes us up and informs the way that we think, the way that we feel, what we will, what we do. And look at what David says about the heart here. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. That's a pretty strong word, create. Not, hey, could you just clean up a little bit? Could you just tweak? Would you do something new? Oh Lord, save me. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Well, fourth, true repentance looks to Jesus for deliverance from the penalty and power of sin. Okay, it always looks to Jesus for deliverance from the penalty and power of sin. David cries out, verse 14, for deliverance. Deliver me from what? From my blood guiltiness. I did this. I am wrong, O God. Save me. Deliver me, O God, of my salvation. Uh, Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. In other words, remove the guilt and shame that has imprisoned me, that has blinded me, and cover me with your love and with your joy. Verse 12, restore to me, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And so yes, true repentance always looks to Jesus for deliverance from the penalty and power of sin. And that brings us to our final point, the cross, because the cross is where we find true deliverance. Okay, so when I I was growing up, my family attended, uh, it was an old Episcopal church. And a story came to mind this week uh, when I was a little kid uh, in preschool, probably about three or four years old is my guess. And we had, I remember we had a relatively new uh, Sunday school wing at the time. I uh, had the good old cinder block walls, and the hallway, I think, was painted some kind of dark gray-blue, you know, not the most warm and welcoming inviting, but that's what it was. And, and I remember one Sunday morning when my mom was walking me to my Sunday school class. I was walking down the hall, and I, and I noticed something way up high that I, I just hadn't noticed before. Now, it was, it was a crucifix, but I didn't, I didn't have that word in my vocabulary, and I, and I couldn't quite see what it was, and so I just looked up and I said, hey, Mom, what is that? And she simply answered, oh, that's Jesus on the cross. And so over the next few weeks, I I was thinking about that over and over, and especially on Sunday mornings when I had to to walk down that hall to my Sunday school class and then then walk back up the hall. And I began to to look at it, and I, I started to wonder, out of all the churches in the entire world, how did our church get to be the one that actually has Jesus on the cross? Okay, so you can see where this is going. Yeah, like, I actually thought that was the real Jesus. Okay, preschooler, take what mom says, literally, it's Jesus on the cross. Which, of course, then leads to the next question. Why is he so small? Okay, now they say that that bright children ask lots of good questions. I'm afraid that maybe the converse is true and that not-so-bright children come up with really dumb conclusions. So I eventually concluded, having never asked anybody about this, that it was a shrunken down, mummified Jesus. That was my conclusion. Okay, now think about that. In my church, it weirded me out, friends. It weirded me out. It freaked me out so much so that I didn't like walking up and down that hall. And and that when I did, I would always walk as far as I could to the opposite side so that I I could just avoid it. Now, I mean, I, I do... Thank you for your your patience and grace. I mean, I was a preschooler. Uh, I obviously had an active imagination and clearly some very bad theology. But as I thought about it, I realized, aren't we just the same way so much of the time? I mean, that we often live as if Jesus is really small. And as if his cross isn't big enough to cover all our sin. And you know what happens is that lie leads us away from the gospel. It leads us away from the cross where we walk on the opposite side of the hall and avoid Jesus. But what we see here, so wonderfully what we see here in Psalm 51, is that, in, that instead of pretending that he isn't that bad and, and thus walking on the opposite side of the hall, avoiding God, what we see here is that David runs to God. He runs to God covered in blood with his betrayal, adultery, and murder, knowing that God is his only hope, and knowing that God is big enough to cover all his sins. And though David couldn't see the cross as clearly as we can today, We do begin to catch a glimpse of it in verse 1. Because David cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, what? Blot out my transgressions. According to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy. Well, where do we most clearly see God's abundant mercy? In steadfast love at the cross. Because the cross is where God fully and finally dealt with sin, decisively blotting out our transgressions forever. At great cost to himself, in great love for us. And so you see, the way that David killed. What was killing him without killing himself was to throw himself in all of his mess, to throw himself on God's abundant, steadfast, unfailing, all-powerful, life-changing mercy and love. And you know, in the end, we are all like David, because all sin is adultery, betrayal, unfaithfulness to God. But here's what David got, or or rather what got him and what I really hope will get a hold of us as well. The words of the Apostle Paul from Romans 2, God's kindness leads us to repentance. That's what it says, God's kindness leads us to repentance. Or I mean, just look in your, your order of worship today. Look back at the words of grace from this morning. From Titus 3. What does it say? When when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. And at the cross, we see the enormity of God's kindness and love in Jesus. And that's what leads us to repentance. That's what leads us to turn back to the one who gave himself for us with an undying love. And so, like David, we return to him again and again through the gift of repentance. Okay, not not with, with heads hanging down, not with a sense of condemnation, because there is, in Christ, there is now no condemnation. No, instead, we return humbly grateful. We turn back again and again with thanksgiving and joy. And so, friends, look to the cross and keep looking to the cross and see the kindness and love of God, our Savior. And then let His kindness fill you with joy and lead you to repentance and lead you back to Him again and again and again. Well, this morning, of course, we have the opportunity to do just that right now. Because here at at this table, the kindness and love of God our Savior is expressed beautifully and powerful, powerfully to us. Right here. And, as, and as, as we prepare to come to the table, I couldn't help but think of what the Pharisees said, their, their complaint, their accusation against Jesus. If you remember in Luke 15, the Pharisees uh, decry. They say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Amen. Hallelujah. Yes, he does. And He invites you and me to come to His table. He invites us to come and to eat with Him. To come acknowledging our sin. Embracing His forgiveness. And rejoicing in His grace and loving kindness. And so let's do that now.